one and all to the Practicology Podcast. This is episode 97 and it's called Hail the Incarnate Deity. This is the first Sunday of December and uh, Matthew, you're kicking us off there with a title that sounds pretty Christmassy. It is Christmassy, but seeing as my title is borrowed from the lyrics of one of Charles Wesley's carols, you can be sure that it also has a solid spoonful of theology as well. Yeah, what a hymn writer he was. We still sing lots of his songs today, even though he wrote them way back when, in the, in the 1700s, I think. And uh, these songs that he's written have really stood the test of time. Yeah, he's got over a dozen entries in the Believer's Hymn Book that we sing from on Sunday mornings in our local church. But he was also an avid writer of Christmas songs. In fact, when I was at Harvard University... Wait a second there, Matthew. I can't let you get away with that. Since when did Matthew Kane attend Harvard? Attend is an interesting word. I didn't say I attended. I, I was there. I went there. All right, all right. I went to Harvard one afternoon years ago, actually right at this time of year, to visit their beautiful campus outside Boston to see the inscription on its campus gates, the words of the Lord Jesus, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, and to visit their library, knowing that they had some very old Bibles and Christian books. So that's what I mean when I say I went to Harvard. Gotcha. But what I didn't know was that you had to request those old Bibles several days in advance, so I didn't actually get to see those. I did get to see some old Christian songbooks from the 1700s, including some hymns of Charles Wesley. One of those songbooks was a collection he wrote entirely about Christmas. In fact, on multiple Christmases, he put out a hymnal of freshly written carols for the season, and I think the lyrics referenced in our title today, maybe that's the most famous carol he wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mike, can you read the second verse of that carol that Charles Wesley penned. Yeah, I'd love to. Here it goes. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to appear, Jesus our Emmanuel here. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Wow, Matthew, as I just read that now, I mean, normally we, we sing these words, but just reading it instead, um, I'm amazed at those lyrics. They are so profound. There's so much spiritual truth there, and they are put together so beautifully. Yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you've indicated that you're keen in on that one phrase. I mean, just these three words are absolutely loaded, worthy of an entire podcast for sure. Uh, the three words are the incarnate deity. Right. Deity refers to Jesus' divine status, that is, he possesses the nature of God. So we're thinking today about the infleshing of God, because that's what incarnate means. Carne, in the word carnate, carne is the Latin word for flesh. So when we speak about the incarnation of Christ, we're speaking about the infleshing of deity, the astounding, mind-blowing, worship-creating truth that God took on human flesh. Listen to those lines again. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to appear, Jesus our Emmanuel here. Yeah, our Emmanuel here. What a lovely phrase. And uh, as you've been pointing out, Matthew, Wesley's words, his theology, it's coming from scripture. And that little phrase, our Emmanuel here, is coming from Isaiah 7 and Matthew chapter 1. 
Right. Matthew records the angel's words to Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Then Matthew adds his spirit-inspired commentary on this. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now friends, don't overlook that. Don't get used to it. Don't miss the significance of it. There was a little baby boy here once, lying in the arms of his virgin mother. And that little bundle of flesh was God with us, incarnate deity, God in real human flesh. Amen. There's something uh, for us to get excited about today. Well, Matthew, this truth about the incarnation is vast, and uh, it is too vast for a 20-minute podcast episode. So what's your plan for the next few minutes here? We want to do three things. We want to clarify the theology, think about the purpose of the incarnation, or the main purpose at least, and then the implication for us today. Clarify the theology, the purpose of the incarnation, and the practical implications for us today. Sounds good. Well, I'm glad you got a plan. So I like theology, so why don't you get us started right there? Sometimes you might hear things that are possibly said in an attempt to safeguard the deity of Christ, but might actually diminish his humanity, which doesn't help us in the end. F.F. Bruce references Bishop Hanley Mool saying, a savior that is not quite God is a bridge broken at the far end. And F.F. Bruce agrees with that, but then adds, with equal truth it must be said that a savior that is not quite man is a bridge that is broken at the nearer end. And our Lord's deity is not enhanced when men, thinking to do him honor, detract from the completeness of his manhood. That's a good quote. So Hebrews 2 says, since the children, that's us, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. And this required true, full, real humanity. One of the errors that the early church had to withstand was docetism, that Jesus only seemed to be human. Well, 1 John 4 says that teaching is the spirit of Antichrist. But uh, Matthew, some clarification is still needed, right? Because his humanity was a sinless humanity. I'm thinking of Hebrews 4. He has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, uh, just for an example. 100%. But what we need to guard against is in thinking that since he was without sin, his humanity was some sort of freakish humanity. It wasn't. And to help us understand that, consider Adam and Eve and the original creation. They were fully human. God had said, let us make man in our image, and he made them male and female. So I recognize that because of our experience, it's hard for us to even fathom real, true, genuine humanity without sin. But it existed before the fall in Adam and Eve. So we could speak of three types of humanity that are all expressions of real flesh and blood humanity. They are innocent humanity, that's Adam and Eve pre-sin, fallen humanity, that's all the rest of us since Adam's sin, perfect humanity which is Christ, and for which believers in Christ are destined. So innocent humanity, fallen humanity, and then perfect humanity, uh, which those who belong to Christ will share in the resurrection. Right, but while we share, while we will share in his perfect humanity, he is still unique because his humanity is an incarnation of deity. 
In the lovely words of John 1, where John calls the Lord Jesus the Word, he says, the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh. Jesus is Emmanuel. God was here with us. And it's significant that Matthew cites that at the time of Jesus' conception. Another error that the church withstood in the early days of the gospel was the one promoted by Serinthus, that the Christ was a spirit and Jesus was like a temporary container for the spirit Christ. And he likely taught that the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him prior to his crucifixion. And the apostle John adamantly opposes that in his first epistle, who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And later he adds, Jesus is the Son of God. In the incarnation, then, the Son became what he never was before, that is a man, without ceasing to be what he ever was, the eternal God. In the incarnation, the Son became what he never was before, without ceasing to be what he always was. So here's another unique thing about the Lord Jesus. His conception in the womb of Mary didn't produce a new personality. When you and I were conceived, a new person was created. Not so with the Christ. This is, this is the wonder of Christmas. When Mary laid her firstborn son in the manger, the person who possessed that body had already and always existed for eternity. But now for the first time, deity was manifested in humanity. So we can sing with Charles Wesley, Hail the incarnate deity. When I say for the first time, I know there were Christophanies in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appearing as a man, for example. But those weren't, those weren't incarnations. Those were temporary appearances as a man, but in his conception in the womb of the Virgin, he was taking on flesh as part of his being. In his revelation to the world, he became a man. Well, I'm appreciating this clarification, Matthew, and maybe I could offer a further clarification. And that is that what's happening here is different from ancient Greek mythology, for example. Uh, the incarnation isn't some kind of metamorphosis where God morphs into a man, but he was, as you said, becoming what he never was before without ceasing to be what he eternally was, the eternal God. Right, that's, that's an important clarification, thank you. And, and this means that in the Lord Jesus, what we're saying, there are two distinct natures united in one person. He's not half God and half man. There is not a divine Jesus plus a human Jesus. There is Jesus who is both God and man. And this isn't like mixing two elements to create a new substance like you do when you combine two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom to get water. Jesus is not some sort of freakish humanity. His humanity is genuine humanity, but the person who possesses that humanity is also God. Well, I think that's solid theology, Matthew, and I like that what we're doing today is showing there is a rich theology to the Christmas story. And that's exactly what Charles Wesley wrote so poetically in his, in his Christmas carol. So when, when we sing these true Christmas carols, let's remember to think about what we're singing. And let's remember to worship. Go ahead and sing about chestnuts roasting on the open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose. But when you sing, hark the herald angels sing, take time to wonder 
and worship in those lyrics to hail the incarnate deity. Uh -huh. And let's rejoice in the grace of the gospel in that story, uh, because Charles Wesley's carol also teaches us the Christmas story is that Christ was born for a purpose. He was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so, Matthew, I'm just leading into your second point here, which is the purpose of the incarnation. Thank you. The Son of God became a man so that men and women could become sons of God. But our new birth as children of God required more than just a baby in a manger. Our new life was contingent upon a man dying our death for us. And only the man who is God could do that. God is spirit and thus cannot die. The scriptures actually never say God died, but they are crystal clear that the man who is God died and that he died for us. We had sinned and the consequence of sin is death and the just punishment for sins committed against the eternal God as all sin is, is what scripture calls the second death, the lake of fire forever separated from God and an everlasting judgment against sin. But what if, what if there was a way for that penalty to be justly paid for us? We obviously can't pay it ourselves. We would simply be hopelessly condemned. But what if there was a mediator who could satisfy God and represent us? Only a real man could properly represent man, but only God could satisfy God. And the incarnation, the infleshing of God is the answer. As 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Amen. I love the gospel and uh, what this teaches us about Christmas that so many people overlook. You know, maybe they're looking at the little nativity scene. And what so many overlook is that the baby boy was born to die. He didn't just come to lie in a manger, but to hang on a cross. Right. But, but in between the manger and the cross, there were many other things that took place. There were other purposes in the incarnation, but let me fold one of them into one of the, the practical implications of the incarnation for us today. So firstly, we have a Savior and a God who understands us at the deepest level. He is one of us. This is Hebrews 2 again. He had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Our Savior worked with his hands as a carpenter to make a living for his family. He relates to that. Real tears fell down his cheeks at times in genuine expressions of sorrow and emotional pain. He was extremely physically tired at times. He experienced unjust criticism and he felt it keenly. He experienced heartache. In other words, what I'm trying to say, friends, is that the incarnation means our Lord Jesus knows how we feel. This is the truth of the Hebrews 4 passage you referenced earlier, Mike. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. No sinful impulse within him, yet the pressures and temptations brought about by the external circumstances of life, those were real to him. So the Lord genuinely walks with you in the trials of life because he's walked them before you. His sympathy isn't condescending, it's not put on, but it is the sympathy of incarnate deity who not only understands how you feel but can pour out mercy and grace to sustain you. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is so precious and needful. And uh, I think it leads to a second implication of the incarnation, Matthew, and, and that is that, that we have hope. Our destiny, as you said earlier, is to be like Christ, which means that we're not stuck in a perpetual cycle of suffering. Uh, we're not working our hardest to try and qualify for a better existence in the next go around like is taught in the doctrine of reincarnation. But we anticipate a resurrection in an age where we will know no pain or sorrow. Sure, and that's that's also Hebrews, actually. Hebrews 6, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. To your point, if he's the forerunner, then there's others to follow, right? Yeah, and that's us. We're the ones who get to follow. We're, we're going to be where he is, beyond the realm of suffering, and then he's bringing us with him in his kingdom. Amen. And Mike, I have come to learn in a couple of different ways how practical hope really is. So I'm, I'm glad you've raised it. Um, where there is no hope, there's no motivation to live with purpose. And I know for some, this very time of year actually can put a dent in your hope. And uh, Mike and I want to try and pop out that dent to restore your hope by pointing you to a living Savior who is beyond the veil of suffering and disappointment and yet is also with us. Yeah, and can I just remind you listeners, um, Peter says, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus has taken real humanity into the glory and he's going to unite us to himself. The grave is not the end. Suffering is not all there is. The resurrection of incarnate deity provides hope for a glorified humanity for ourselves as well. Very good. Okay, thank you. Let me touch on one more implication for us today, and I'm thinking now of Philippians 2, a classic passage to refer to for the Incarnation. But Paul didn't write that paragraph merely to give us some Christology for our systematic theology. He wrote that to teach us humility. When we think about the Incarnation, we should learn the lesson of humility. Philippians 2 says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He humbled himself. The incarnation shows us that our God is a self-humbling God. The one who has always existed in the form of God humbled himself to become a man and die the most ignominious of deaths, that is, the death of the cross. Bethany Jenkins writes that the incarnation is so shocking and appalling that this separates Christianity from Islam and Judaism. The Jerusalem Talmud says, If man claims to be God, he is a liar. The Quran says, Allah begets not and was not begotten. So Jews and Muslims understand, she says, how ludicrous it is to think that a holy God would humiliate himself by becoming human. And later she adds, our holy God did become incarnate. People spit upon him and lived. It's amazing. He humbled himself. But remember that this paragraph was written to teach Christians how to be united. And he is saying, the pathway to unity is through the humility of Christ. 
Remember how that paragraph began in Philippians 2. Have the same mind, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, be humble towards one another. Yeah, and just a couple verses earlier, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. And, uh, and that's what Christ did in the Incarnation, isn't it? He, he didn't exploit his equality with God for selfish goals. He, he took the low place so that he could exalt others. Amen. So at Christmas, friends, and hey, apart from Christmas, let's think about the, the humble self-giving of Christ in the Incarnation and apply it to our interactions with others. Remember that our Lord both demonstrated and he taught that it is more blessed to give than to receive. All right, well, we'll end on that timely word. Thank you, Matthew, for reminding us of these beautiful truths. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week. May the Lord bless you all.